0: Today's guest speaker, not just today, but for a couple of weeks, is Chris Wright. Chris Wright has served in the ministry for over the last 25 years as a student pastor, senior pastor, church planter, and a church planting catalyst. He currently serves at the Chicago City Missionary with the North American Mission Board. He and Lori have been married 26 years and have three adult children and live in the Roscoe Village neighborhood in the city. He's also been uh, very helpful to us on the transition team, kind of guiding us and keeping us from fumbling and bumbling as much as possible. <laughs> so please welcome back Chris Wright. <clears throat> back. Good morning, everybody. Good to be back. The last time I was here, it was like 100 degrees in here. So I'm thankful uh, to be back when it's a little bit cooler. So... Who, who wrote Go Cubs on the top of this? I don't know who that was. All right, whatever. Uh, perhaps you know this already, but uh, uh, when, uh, when they do surveys uh, for religious activities and things, the Barna Group is a kind of a, a, a group that does surveys. When they do surveys in the United States, one of the things they find is that the vast majority of Americans uh, believe in God, still believe in God. Uh, three out of four Americans uh, would say today that they believe in some higher being. Uh, when they say that, I often wonder like what does that exactly mean? like what do they believe? Um, most would say uh, those three out of four would say they believe that there's there's some kind of higher being that there's there 's some kind of spirit that uh, that indwells the heavenly realms but that that 's really where uh, the majority of us would probably stop. Uh, uh, in, in America to say, well, we, we could probably all agree on that. But it's interesting as you go a little bit deeper, people's beliefs tend to break down after that, their, their belief in the Bible or their belief in how God works in the world and how sin enters the world and, and interacts with people like that. Those things differ uh, among Americans, it, it differs. So most Americans say they believe in God, but there is some kind of breakdown when we talk about belief in God. Like, what do we actually believe? And I think if we're honest with one another, we could all say that we probably struggle with belief. We probably all struggle with belief at certain levels. It could be circumstantial, right? Things get challenging and difficult, and we could we could say that we struggle with certain aspects of our belief in God and, and who He is and His character and His works. Um, perhaps we don't Uh, differ or uh, disbelieve in his existence, but I would say most of us struggle with believing the promises of God at certain times in our life, if we're truly honest with ourselves, that we struggle with that. Today, we're going to explore the story of Zechariah and Mary and the birth announcement of their sons, of John, John the Baptist, and Jesus. Now, there's some similarities to their stories, as Daniel read, that long passage. Next week I'll try to pick a little bit shorter passage, but uh, I know it was a long passage, but I really wanted you to see the scope of these stories so that you could, you could more readily compare their stories. So there's some similarities to the stories that we have. One is that they are both visited by the angel Gabriel, right? They're both visited by an angel who is Gabriel. They're both promised a miraculous birth of a son. We see that in both stories. They are both equally unfit To have children they're both equally unfit to have children one because she's a virgin the other one because they are old of age so they're they're the similarities they're both very unfit to have children and they both respond with an equally perplexing response they have the same general response to Gabriel which is how can this be like this seems impossible but there are some major differences to the story as we parallel them Uh, One is just the characters involved. One is Mary, who is a young, um, can't really know the exact age, but she's very young, uh, unmarried virgin, who's uh, a peasant girl who lives in Nazareth, so we understand that. The other is an old man, right? An old couple uh, who, uh, again, we don't know their exact age, but somewhere between 60 and 80 uh, years of age. We understand. So we have an old couple and a young uh, virgin, unmarried woman. This old man, who is the character here, is a religiously educated a temple priest. We understand that about him. So the characters that we read about, there's, they're as polar opposite as you could possibly get. Now they're related, they're related together, but they are very, very different people. And they have very different outcomes. We see that in the the story, right? Very different outcomes. We, as Daniel read, you heard that Zechariah is struck mute and Mary then is called blessed later on in the passage. So very different outcomes. Let's, uh, let's talk first about Zechariah. I want to go a little bit more in depth about Zechariah and, and who this gentleman is and his story. So what do we know about Zechariah? Well, what we understand about him historically is that he is one of about 18,000 priests at that time. There's 18,000 priests who are serving the temple at this time. It's a lot of priests, isn't it? That's a lot of priests. 18,000 priests that all uh, serve the temple. Uh, he is part of a, a lineage that, uh, of, uh, uh, that has called him as a priest. So this is a, this is a family occupation, right? This is a family... Role that he has taken on as uh, is in, in the time, in biblical times, in New Testament, Old Testament times. You typically take the role that your parents have had, and so he is in a, a lineage. The name that's uh, named here is one of a lineage of priests out of the the uh, tribes of Levi, and so he's found himself as a he's one of eighteen thousand. He's uh, uh, and he's drawn a lot to be the the, the one who brings the incense that day. instead so of eighteen thousand priests that particular day. He draws a lot to be chosen to be the one that goes into the holy place. Now, only once a year is the high priest able to go into the holy of holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant would sit in the temple. But the temple priest, the one, the lot that he's chosen is to go into the holy place, uh, where if you read throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament is where the altars of incense and those kinds of things. And so he's, dro- he's chosen a lot. Out of the 18,000 priests, this is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You can only enter into the holy place as a priest one time. That's it. This is his one shot. And his job is to enter into holy place. Uh, He would have worn his uh, priestly garment. He would have had bells on the bottom of his robe in case he were to accidentally step foot into that holy place or something like that, struck dead, and they would have been able to drag him out right? This is, a, this is a really big deal. So he's dressed in his, in his priestly garb. He has been preparing and readying himself to go into the holy place. He's got his charcoal, and what he's going to go, do is he's going to go and he's going to replace the charcoal in the altar of incense. He's going to take the old charcoal out, put the new charcoal in, and he's going to fill it uh, with the incense so that the incense rises to the Lord, and so, this is his job. This is his one shot. He's going in. It doesn't take very long to do this, but this is, this is the one opportunity in his entire lifetime that he will have ever entered into the temple. Are you with me? This is a really big deal. A really big deal. Like, he's prepared himself mentally, spiritually. He's cleansed himself. He's prepared himself for this because he's drawn the slot, and now's his shot to go in. And so, he's a law abiding religiously educated guy, and so he enters into the temple, and he's met there by the angel Gabriel. Right? I mean, this would have been shocking. (laughs) Just absolutely shocking. So if if you were to to encounter, you're going into the holy places, you're one shot, the one time you get, and you are met by an angel who gives you this amazing announcement, right? What do you think your response is going to be? Like, I mean, what do you think? Like, this is his one moment. What do you think his response would be? Well, it gets even deeper, right? So he's been praying, he's been hoping, he's been readying himself, right? This moment is just not just any other moment in history, right? This is a moment in time where it has been, now listen to this, it has been 800 years, 800 years since a miracle has happened. 800 years since a miracle has happened. This is, this is you remember, that there's, a time of, there's a period of time here where the Lord has been silent from the Old Testament now to the New Testament, right? It's been silent. It has been 800 years since there's been a miracle. It has been, it has been 500 years since an angel has appeared to anyone. 500 years. The last angel that has appeared... Uh, is in the book of Daniel. Right? So you have Daniel in the lions' den, you have Daniel uh, you have uh, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the in the furnace and and just after uh, Daniel in the lions' den, Daniel has a has an angel visit him. I wonder who that angel might have been. Any guesses? Is the angel Gabriel? It's been 500 years since anyone has heard from an angel. 800 years since there's been anything kind of miraculous happen. It has been 400 years since God has spoken through a prophet from anyone. 400 years, 500 years, 800 years. This is like, so if you're, if you're Zechariah and you have walked into the temple and you have just encountered Gabriel, like he knows this, right? He would have known the book of Daniel backwards and forwards. Like he would have known like, this is the guy, right? This is the angel that brings messages. This is, this is not the other angel who comes in and, like, destroys armies. This is the guy that comes and gives, this is the one that comes and gives messages to us. And it's been 500 years since someone's heard from him. Like, what kind of response do you think Zechariah should have had, could have had in that moment? It gets deeper, right? <laughs> it just gets deeper. Zechariah has been praying. He has been praying. Like, how many years have he and his wife been praying for the birth of a child? If he's somewhere around 70 years old, right, he could have been praying for 50 years. He's been praying diligently. Scripture says he's been praying diligently to have a child. In fact, the angel says, your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son your petition is heard. The Greek implies that there's this, it's been a long-standing petition. This is something that, that has been going on and on and on. So if you're, if you're Zechariah and you're met with this message of you're going to, like we've heard your prayer. God is you've been praying diligently for years and years and years and years and years, right? We've heard it. God has heard it and he's answering it. What do you think Zechariah's response should be? I mean, you would think that would be, I mean, if you're hoping and praying diligently, God, please give us a son. We've been waiting for 50 years. What do you think his response should have been? The angel goes on, though, right? It gets even deeper. Because the angel tells him exactly the depth of what all of this means. He says, Not only are you giving me a son, but he said, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his, at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. Like, not just that we've heard your prayer, that God has heard your prayer and has answered your prayer, but the son you're going to receive is going to be the forerunner for the Messiah. Like, it's not just, Hey, this is good news, this is great news. This is, above, this, is like, this is the dream any Jewish father would ever have in his lifetime. That God has been silent for 400 years, and now at this moment, this moment, what we've been praying and hoping for as a Jewish people is finally coming to fruition. The time has come, and your son, your son will be great. People will rejoice because he's going to be the forerunner before the Messiah. I mean like what do you think his response should have been? I mean for a Jewish father he should have been out of his mind excited. But <laughs> right? I mean all of that compounded upon pounded upon each other, like all of those things and what is Zechariah's response? What is the response? His response is uh, much like that of Abraham in Genesis 18, isn't it? it smells like, I mean, like this is not a necessarily a new response. But he says, how can I be sure of this? How can I be sure of this? It's a different response than Mary's response. You know what he's saying? He's saying, show me. If this is true, show me. I want to see some proof of this. How can I know that I can trust this? How do I know that I can trust this? Will this happen? I don't believe you. That's the essence of his response. Is, I'm not so sure about that. You know, my wife and I are really old. This is Gabriel standing in front of you. Well, we're pretty old. I don't know. I'm not sure we can really believe this. The angel said in verse 9, he said, Because you don't believe my words. This is a lack of belief from Zechariah. This is a lack of belief from him. The difference appears in one little additional clause uh, that Zechariah adds to his question that's different than Mary's response. It's so just this little additional clause. Mary simply asked, How can this happen? Zechariah asked, How can I be sure this will happen? You see the difference? How can this happen, Mary asks. Zechariah asks, how can I be sure? How can I be sure that this can happen? Mary's question is about God. Zechariah's question is about himself. Zechariah is not at all sure that God is good and great, and he wants to see some proof. He wants to see some proof. Zechariah doubted the promises of God. He doubted that God could overcome his human obstacle. I mean, what was it? Like, my wife and I are old. Like, it's, we're way past the age of conceiving. And so he asked God for a sign. He's, he's, he's doubting God's goodness. Like, God can't... Like, yes, he says this, but is he really good? Is he really going to follow through in his promises on this? Is he good? He doubts that God can answer his prayer. I mean, the angel says... Your prayers have been heard. But Zechariah doubts God's greatness. Can he really hear this? Can he really respond? Can he overcome any of these things? He doubts God's goodness and his greatness. Here's the thing. His experience, his age, his education should have dictated a different response. Right? I mean, his education as a religiously educated man who studied the Torah for so many years understood the old testament law backward and forward understood the promises of god understood all the prophecies like all of that should have told him to respond in a different way his age right his age should have should have dictated something he would have seen the faithfulness of god year after year after year so it should have dictated some kind of different response his experiences should have dictated a different response right all of those things everything that would have been compounded that the angel told him should have dictated a completely different response, but he didn't. And so the angel answered him. I love this too, right? How the angel how did how did how did the angel respond to him? He says, I am Gabriel. I think he would have said it very emphatically. Like, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Like, it's almost as though Gabriel's like, do you not know who I am? Like, how, like, really, how dare you? Like, do you not understand that I stand in the presence of God Almighty? And he goes on to say, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. That good news is the word that we use for gospel. I was sent here to bring you the gospel, the good news that Jesus will arrive and will change history forever. But you refuse to believe me. So his punishment was what? It was silence. Some, some theologians have actually said that he, was, he, he couldn't speak and he was also deaf. What we know for sure is that he couldn't speak, right? And so what did he miss by being mute? Like, what did he miss? Well, one... He missed giving the standard benediction coming out of the temple. Like it told you, that, uh, as we read the scripture, it said that everyone had assembled at the temple and were praying and praising. So there would have been a crowd there waiting. And so they noticed that it was taking him a little extra long. Their guess was he did something wrong, he's dead. I mean, that was that's standard. You do something wrong in the temple, yeah, you're dead. So they're probably wondering, are we going to have to dra- drag a dead body out of there? But no, here comes Zechariah. He's coming out. And now he's signing like, I'm freaking out. Like, right? Something. I don't know what he's saying. But he's, he's signing something like something just happened. And so what he missed, what he missed was an incredibly important part of his role as a temple priest, which was giving the benediction to the people. He missed it. Waiting his entire life for that one moment. And now because of his disobedience, because of his unbelief, his unbelief, he can't speak the benediction. Something he would have remembered for the entire rest of his life. The other thing he missed is carrying out his temple priest duties for the next nine months. See, the assumption is he's done something wrong, right? That unbelief has caused some some kind of sin. There's something in his life that has caused that. And so as a result, he no longer can serve as a temple priest. His normal job is to... Uh, is basically is to be a butcher, right? That, that's the temple priest's duty, is to be a butcher for all the sacrifices that are coming in all the time, right? And so now he can't even perform his regular duties. Now he's at home for nine months, just waiting because he can't do his work. So he's missed the opportunity to be the temple priest. And even more so, he can't tell anyone the good news, right? You've been waiting for so many, 50 years, and, and, and your wife is now pregnant, like now now you can't tell anyone the good news. It's hard to keep a secret, isn't it, when it's great news like that? Really hard. Can you imagine him knowing what he knows now, right? After it all settled in and he goes, oh my gosh, my wife is carrying the forerunner to the Messiah, right? I mean, to know that information and to not be able to speak it must have been heartbreaking, must have been heartbreaking. Let's be honest. We all know what it's like to battle unbelief. Like, it's easy to go, why didn't he get it? Like, how could he have missed it? Like, how audacious it was, right? But let's be honest about ourselves and and to say, like, our experience, our age, our education, like, everything in us should tell us that we should believe what God promises. And we don't. We don't. I think we can identify probably more when we're honest with Zechariah, um, and probably the man who Jesus encounters, who says, "I do believe, help my unbelief." I do believe, help my unbelief. Such an odd turn of phrase, isn't it? It's a man who comes to Jesus says, "My, um, is it my daughter? I think is sick." And Jesus says, uh, and basically the man responds, said, I do believe, Jesus. I believe that you have the power to do this, but help my unbelief. Such an odd turn of phrase. I think it's, I think it's what Zechariah must have experienced in this. Is that there's something either in our heads that say, um, I believe this intellectually, but my heart just can't accept it. Or my heart longs for it, but my intellect won't allow me to believe it. I think it could go both ways. And we probably struggle at different times in our life with that. I do believe, but help my unbelief. At the heart of our unbelief really is the goodness of God. It's what Satan did in the the garden at the beginning of time to us, right? Where he tempts us and he said, Do you really believe what God said here is true? See, I think we struggle with that many times. Do we believe the promises of God? Do we really believe what he says? I think there's areas of unbelief in our life, um, recesses in our hearts, little places in our hearts where we would say to Lexi, well, of course I believe in God, of course I believe his promises, of course I do that, I, I understand him, My experience my age, all those things point to believing in God, and you, you may even push back and say, well, there, there's nothing of unbelief in me, but there are recesses in our hearts that, that at times just become places of unbelief in us. There's different things. One is when we face trials, right? When we face trials, when bad things happen, do you really believe the goodness of God or do you question? There are places of unbelief in your heart where you go, I know God is good. I know he's good, but I just don't feel his goodness right now. It's a place of unbelief in our hearts. Do you try to fix those things? Like when bad things happen, do you, do you tend to try to rush in and fix them on your own? Or do you rely on God? See, that's an area of unbelief that we have. When, when we think we can fix everything, it is, the underlying factor is, I don't believe God is strong enough to do and fix this thing, so I have to do it myself. That's a place of unbelief. What about with your money? Do you really believe God for your resources? Do you really believe that God will take care of you? I mean, the the great test is in your tithing, right? If you don't tithe, it really is a place of unbelief for you. I don't mean to step on your toes, but it is is a place of unbelief that what essentially you are saying is, I don't believe that if I give 10% of my money that God can supply all of my needs. It's a place of unbelief for you, that I don't trust God for everything. What about worry? This is a one where we probably all could find little recesses of our heart where we find unbelief. When you worry, you are communicating to God that you don't believe he is capable of taking care of things. And all of us, right, have moments of worry. And essentially what we're saying is, God, I'm just not sure you're good enough to take care of this. So I have to worry for you. I have to worry for myself. See, there's all kinds of areas, and those are just a couple of examples. Those, there's all kinds of areas in our heart where, and in our mind where we, we have unbelief. So it's not just like, oh, that, that, that terrible Zechariah, like I can't believe he, he didn't believe what God promised to him. Right? No, that's it, really what it is. Zechariah provides a mirror for us. It says he, he's just like us. We are just like him. Like God has shown his faithfulness year after year. Our age, our experience, our education, all of those things should show us that we can trust a God who is good and great. But yet Zechariah provides a mirror for us to go, wait, there's, there's many areas of unbelief in my own life. Times when I don't believe the goodness of God. I don't believe the greatness of God. The biggest area that I find that people struggle with unbelief is in the gospel itself. It's in the gospel itself. So let me ask you this question. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross? That he took on the wrath of God that you deserved? You believe that? Most, if, you're, if you're a believer, if you've confessed your, your faith in Christ, most of would say, yeah, I, I, I confess that, I believe that. Wholeheartedly, I believe that. Do you believe that there is nothing that you can do to earn his grace? How many of you would say, I, I believe that. There is nothing that I can do to earn his grace. That it was all a gift from God given to me. You all, everybody, okay, all right, yeah. Like that's a, that's a basic tenet of the Christian faith, right? So this means you've, you've, uh, uh, you've received by faith gift of salvation, salvation. Um, we, we believe in Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not on your own doing, it is a gift from God, right? That is the basis of Christianity. This is a basis of following Jesus, that I've been saved through faith. It is not my own doing, it is a gift from God. When we receive that, when we take that on, we understand that when God sees us, he sees the finished work of Jesus. It's called righteousness. So when God looks at you, all he sees is Jesus' final work. It's called righteousness, and it's placed on you, right? Everybody with me? Everybody agree in that? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, for the sake, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We believe that. We take that in. Yes, when God looks at me, he sees, he doesn't doesn't see uh, punishment and wrath. All he sees is he sees Jesus himself, because I've taken on Jesus's righteousness, I stand pure and blameless before him. When he sees me, he sees Jesus's righteousness, pure, blameless, holy. I am saved and it is by faith I've received that. Everybody with me? No, you don't. No, you don't. You believe that intellectually. You believe that theologically. You could sign the document. You could say, yep, that's what I believe. But let's be honest. We struggle with that. Let me ask you this question. When God looks at you, what do you think He thinks about you right now? When He knows the kind of sin that you've committed this week, the unwholesome talk that has come out of your mouth, the pornography that you've looked at, the way that you've talked to your spouse, Or your children? The things that you've done this week? The way that you've degraded co-workers? Or talked behind people's backs? All of that, that sin? When you think about that? How do you think God thinks about you right now because of that? Let me be honest with you. When I think about that, I think God is disappointed in me. Do you know what? That's a lie. It's a lie. You just told me that you believe that when Jesus died on the cross and you receive by faith righteousness that what God sees when he looks at you is the finished work of Jesus. How in the world can he be disappointed in you? He can't. Do you really believe that you've taken on the righteousness of Christ. There are areas of our life where we just don't understand and believe the gospel for ourselves. We just don't. I struggle with that every single day, thinking that somehow God is angry with me, or disappointed in me, or mad at me, or that I'm just not living up to the expectations that God has for me. That is not biblical. It is not. By faith, you have received the righteousness of Christ. When He looks at you, who does He see? Jesus. That is all. That is all. Anything apart from that, questions is an unbelief of His character, it's an unbelief of His goodness and His greatness. See, we say that we believe the gospel, but there are recesses of our heart that just can't accept it. Right? Because what do we say? Like if if we say we believe the righteousness of Christ reigns in us, that we believe 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if we say we believe Ephesians, if we say that we believe all of Romans, right? When we say that, we say it's too good to be true. Yes, now you understand the gospel. It is too good to be true. But it is true. It is true. There are parts of our lives that are so difficult for us to believe about ourselves and about how God thinks about us. To believe the gospel is to believe that God, when, when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness, the perfect person of Christ. Do you really believe that you are beloved by him through Christ alone? Do you really believe that? See, I think in the most simplistic way, that's what Mary believed. It's a really simplistic way. I think that's what Mary believed, that she was beloved by God. That God loved her. See, her response was one of humility and belief. Her, her question is, how will this be? How will this be? It's kind of a humble confusion, Right? Um, kind of wonder and amazement. It's that kind of that context. It's more of a technical question that she's asking Gabriel. She's saying, How will this happen, right? Since I'm a virgin. Like, I don't get this. Like she's not questioning God. She just she's just questioning, like, I just don't I am not quite sure I understand how this is all gonna happen. And, and and based on Gabriel's response, he gives her the the correct response to her question. Well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will bear a son and she's like okay, okay, all right. Like, she asks the question, like, how, how can this be? And he gives her the response, and her response is this. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it, to be, let it be to me according to your word. I am the servant of the Lord. Okay, whatever you want from me, I'm here. I'm available. to Do all that you want to do with me. Mary's yes is a, is a yes to God, It's a yes to God. It's a yes to the Holy Spirit. It is a yes to Jesus. It's just a yes. And so what did Mary receive for her belief? She received the one true gift, Jesus himself. Jesus himself. Let me just tell you this. Zechariah, even though he was struck mute and unable to speak, um, we could see that as a kind of a punishment, right? But he too received a gift. Right? And at, the, and at the end of the day, they didn't take it away from, God didn't take it away from him, right? It wasn't a punishment. It was a way of reminding Zechariah, right? It was, it, what it did is it granted him nine months to believe on God, to really think and to meditate. It was a gift that God gave him. It was a gift that he gave him. It wasn't a punishment. It was a gift. Verse forty-five in, uh, in Luke chapter one says, "Blessed is he who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her." It is about belief at the end of the day. It's about belief. So let me tell you this: the, the point of this story, the point of this story, is not that you should stop being an unbelieving Zechariah and start being a believing Mary. That would just be moralism, right? Just be moralism. That's that's not the point of Scripture. It is not to tell you to stop being a Zachariah and to start being a Mary. It is in the acceptance of my lack of belief that God gives you belief. It's in your acceptance of my lack of belief that God gives you belief. See, what you need to understand is that my flesh is too weak to believe, the goodness and the greatness of God. It's too weak. I want to believe. God, help my unbelief. See, it would be really easy for me just to stand here and say, there are areas of your life that you have unbelief. Start believing that there's something wrong with you, that you have to start believing more. You have to believe the promises of God and believe his goodness and his greatness. Here's the problem. My flesh wars against that every single day. This world, my flesh, Satan, wars against my belief every single day. It is not by trying harder to believe that you believe. It's saying, God, I don't believe. Help my unbelief. God, you do the work in me because my flesh won't allow me to believe in your goodness. So, God, you have to do the heavy lifting here. I can't do it myself. And So what God does is he gives you gifts. There are times when you need to silence yourself so that you can meditate upon his goodness and his greatness. So you can better understand who he is and his character. Because in our unbelief, only God, only God can help us believe. You can't do that on your own. You can't do that on your own. See, I've, I've changed a bit of the way that I pray these days. See, I, I felt for the longest time God was disappointed in me, that I was I was never living up to a standard. That I would work, try to work, even though intellectually I knew that was insane, right? That I would work harder, and I would somehow get God's pleasure and approval in my life. What I've discovered is that that is that is a uh, that is not a fight that I can fight. It's against it is against Scripture. It's against who the character of God is, and I just can't do it. And so I've just literally said, I give up. <laughs> I can't, I can't keep doing this. It just. I'm just running in circles. And so my prayer has just changed. God, I want to believe. I want to believe. Help me in my unbelief. Help me. Feel me. Help me understand and believe in the deepest recesses of my heart that you are good and that you are great. See, when we're honest enough to say that, do you know what you get? You get Jesus himself. You get Jesus. When you admit that you're a fraud, when you admit that you don't have it figured out, when you admit that you don't believe, when you admit that, you know who you get? You get Jesus himself. You get him, which is greater than anything that you could ever have in life. You get him. Jesus enters into our unbelief. He enters into it. Not condemning, but lovingly, full of grace, and he gives us himself. He gives us himself. So I want to say this to you today. Repent. Repent and believe. Turn around and believe that the good news is that we are loved better than you could ever imagine. Believe that you are loved better than you could ever imagine. That you could ever dare hope that believe in the good news, even in your unbelief. Ask God to fill you with belief this season. Let's pray together.